0: That's one small step for man. There is no planet B.
1: I stand here today humbled.
0: You turn if you want to. I will not be lectured about sexism. The winner is Sidney. This Week in History. Tonight in This Week in History, a great story of espionage and, well, sheer audacity stemming from the Cold War. The year was 1968, and when a Soviet submarine went missing somewhere in the Pacific, well, the Americans decided they wanted to get their hands on it, and they did, sort of. But in order to do so, they not only had to find this missing sub, they had to build a giant ship and a giant claw to try to haul it up from the ocean floor. Dr. Andrew Hammond is the historian and curator at the International Spy Museum based in Washington, D.C., where a few relics from what's called Operation Azorian are kept today. He's here in This Week in History because it was March 8, 1968, that this submarine, the K-129, first disappeared Hello, Andrew. Welcome.
1: Hello. It's a pleasure to speak to you. I'm very glad to be uh, talking to you from Washington, D.C. Yes,
0: we have a Scott talking from Washington to Australia. I do love the international (laughs) connections. So, Andrew, let's set the scene. It's 1968. The Cold War is at its peak and American and Russian subs are just all over the place in the oceans, aren't they?
1: Yeah, it's it's a really fascinating year and it's a really fascinating historical context. So remember, this is around the time where we get the switch over from Lyndon Baines Johnson uh, to Richard Nixon. So Johnston bows out of the presidential race. Nixon becomes the president. Uh, so that's interesting. We have uh, the Vietnam War. This is the the year of the. Um, this is the year of the uh, the, the Tet Offensive when. Uh, Walter Cronkite goes on to the news in America and said, you know, perhaps now the war is unwinnable. Um, If we think about the broader context around the world, we've got the Vietnam War, we've got um, the the assassinations of Kennedy, uh, President John F. Kennedy earlier in the 1960s. We've got the president of Bobby Kennedy, we've got the president, the assassination of Martin Luther King. So we're at a really, really interesting crossroads in both the history of the United States and the history of the world when we get to 1968.
0: And so these subs, Andrew, that are on the in cruising the oceans around the world, they're all, are they all carrying nukes, or you know, how, how common is that that a, a submarine is going to be nuclear? If you spot one under the ocean somewhere,
1: yeah, it's a it's a very good question. So I think the first way that I would answer that question would be it would depend on which countries' submarines we're talking about. So only certain countries have nuclear weapons or have have been verified to have nuclear weapons. So if you see a submarine from uh, Italy, the chances are it's not going to be a nuclear-armed submarine. Um, A nuclear-powered submarine is something different. So we have submarines which can be powered by diesel. We have submarines which can be powered by nuclear power. But then the armaments on board them, they can be conventional or they can be nuclear. So that can break down a couple of different ways. So it depends on the country that we're talking about. If we're talking about the Soviet Union or we're talking about the United States, then there is a chance that they will be uh, armed with nuclear missiles uh, because they they are two countries that that have nuclear arsenals. Um, Not every submarine that's in those countries would be nuclear armed. So in a former life, I was in the Royal Air Force, but I was seconded to the Royal Navy for a while and I was actually at the home of the uh, British strategic nuclear deterrent at, uh, HMS Fuzz Lane. Um and they have some uh, submarines there that have nuclear weapons, but not every submarine in the Royal Navy is nuclear armed. So, so it depends on the country, and it also depends on the submarine. Okay,
0: but this this Russian sub, the uh, oh, or Soviet sub, the K one two nine. Do do we know if this had nuclear weapons on board?
1: As far as we understand, it was diesel powered, but. Uh, potentially had nuclear it certainly had the potential to be carrying nuclear weapons on board um so this is this is actually quite an interesting point so we've mentioned the context surrounding it 1968 but in 1968 four submarines actually go missing an israeli submarine in the mediterranean a french submarine also in the mediterranean an american submarine in the atlantic and then we have the k129 which goes down in the northern Pacific. So this is the one that we're speaking about. So this is diesel powered, but it certainly had the capability to carry nuclear weapons. Whether or not it did carry nuclear weapons, I'm not exactly 100% sure because of the very nature of this kind of uh, topic that we're speaking about.
0: Does someone in the CIA know the answer to that question?
1: It's a good question. <laughs> <It's> a- <laughs> I like the way you're thinking. <laughs> it's a good question. Um, they may very well do. So we can, you know, we can we can unpack the story of of the Glomar Explorer and the K one twenty nine a little bit further. But certainly there would have been intelligence that would have been gathered from this operation, whether or not it it confirmed that there was nuclear. Uh, weaponry on board I have only read the the only things that I can say for sure are the things that I can see and declassified documents uh, and things that I can corroborate so there's uh, because of the very nature of this topic it lends itself to a lot of conjecture it lends itself to Filling in the gaps. Hey, let me um, guess, so, Andrew.
0: Can you neither confirm nor deny?
1: <laughs> this is the Glomar response. <laughs> we've, we, got the, we've got to the, We've got to the. We've got to a part we were meant to come to air later. We will. On. We will. We'll no, come back a, to the, that. No, this is a great point, though. This is a great point. So, yeah, the Glomar response. We can pick that thread up later.
0: We will. So, look, just everyone who's listening, just park neither confirm nor deny, because we will come back to that uh, a little bit later. <laughs> okay. So, look, Andrew, what what actually happened? to the K-129, March 8, 1968, what, what happened? What went wrong?
1: Yeah, so we're talking about 1,500 uh, miles northwest of Hawaii. So a really, if you look at the map or if you have a map of the world, uh, look at it in 1,500 miles north of Hawaii, there's not much there. Uh, it's pretty barren ocean so this submarine it gets launched from the pacific coast of uh, what's then the Soviet Union, it goes out into the pacific, um, as far as we understand, it's there in case of nuclear war, uh, it would probably launch nuclear weapons if nuclear war ever broke out the submarine's out doing its thing and then it goes down and around 17 thousand feet uh, It goes down and it doesn't come back up. The Soviets, after a while, what's going on? Where's our our submarine? Uh, They don't have a a clear answer to what's going on. Uh, From what we know from the declassified documents, uh, the US Navy and the US Air Force, using hydrophones and other uh, underwater detection equipment, they get a, a... an idea of where it may be, they locate it, then the question is what next? What do we do? So just to put this in the context of the Cold War, submarines are so unbelievably important in this contest. Well, Well, why? Well, if you can take a submarine and park it off the coast of Los Angeles or New York, if a nuclear war breaks out or say the Soviet Union wants to do what's called a first strike we could be talking as little as 10 minutes between the launch of the missile and it hitting downtown manhattan so you can imagine the effect that a one megaton nuclear weapon would have uh, in manhattan it would be pretty devastating so the presence of these submarines is super super important we're talking about this huge Game is not the right term, but it's this huge competition that's taking place all around the globe. The whole world is encompassed in it, and the weaponry that's involved in this contest has the potential to completely take us back to the to the stone age. So we're talking really, really high stakes. So the presence of nuclear armed submarines, as you can imagine, is something of the utmost importance. So one way in which you can try not to be found is to be quiet. And if you're really quiet, uh, if you can't be detected when you're underwater, or if you can try to minimise the ability to be detected, then that's a great thing. So a lot of it comes down to technology. How are their engines? Are Are they noisy? Are they quiet? How are they quiet? How are they... How are they deploying countermeasures to stop themselves being found? So for for the United States, this is a great intelligence-gathering opportunity. There's a submarine at the bottom of the ocean. The Soviets don't know where it is. We know where it is. The submarines are very, very important in the Cold War contest. What if we can get that submarine to the surface? What if we can analyse the technology that's used? What if that can give us an edge in this global competition and remember for the policy makers and the people in the intelligence community at that time they wouldn't know the eventual outcome of the cold war they wouldn't know that it was going to be uh successful for the west and and, and not successful for the the soviet union so so there's a, a lot at stake a lot going on and they make the decision let's let's give it a go let's let's try to get this it's it's so important i think in today's money if i'm if i'm correct we're talking around, is it $4 billion or something? Which Four in the grand million. scheme of things for the Cold War uh, is actually not that much money. I mean, it's certainly way more than probably you or I get paid, but... <laughs> Um, <laughs> Even Taylor Swift doesn't have that much money, actually. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Dr. Andrew, close
0: Dr. Andrew Hammond is here, historian and curator from the International Spy Museum based in Washington, D.C. He's telling you the story of the Glomar Explorer and, uh, well, this search to find this um, Soviet submarine, the K-129. So so the Americans have decided, okay, we're going to try and get hold of the information on this sub, and they presumably couldn't just dive down. It's quite Deep, so they wanted to get it up to the surface. What kind of ideas did they throw around about how they might do this?
1: I think that's a that's a very good question. Um we don't know all of the, the discussions that they had, all of the various things that they thought about, but they quickly came to the realization that it was going to have to be almost relatively simple. <laughs> Something is as down at the bottom of the ocean we need to somehow bring it to the surface. How do we do that? Well, sometimes the closest uh, distance between A and B is a straight line. So what if we just have a ship, we put down these huge hooks, we get a hold of the submarine and we bring it up to the surface. Obviously we're going to need a cover story as well. So they come up with this idea um the best way to think about it i think is like when you go to the arcade or the fairground uh, and you're trying to win a teddy bear for your for your kid or your niece or nephew or something um, it's almost a little bit like that. And it's probably just as difficult to try to get a submarine up from 17,000. Right, this feet.
0: is when we want to try and get the teddy bear in the claw machine. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and exactly. we normally fail because we're grabbing in all of the wrong spots. <laughs>
1: yeah, <exactly. laughs> Which
0: isn't, isn't exactly what happened, but we will, we will get there. So basically, Andrew, they say, we're going to build a giant ship we are going to put a claw in the bottom of the ship that can haul this sub up. But the big issue is the Americans don't have salvage rights to the sub. So what they're doing is actually, what, utterly illegal?
1: Um, <laughs> I think in the Cold War, the... Oh, uh, nothing's illegal? Ill- <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I wouldn't go that far. Um, I certainly think that um, the way that they would probably look at it would be that, that was gamesmanship, um, so they probably uh, wouldn't necessarily look at it like that. Um, I'm not an international lawyer. If we get into the international law of the Cold War, that could be a very long and potentially very boring conversation. Um, but <laughs> but I think it is as a as a good question. Um, it's like during the Cuban Missile Crisis, so six years previously, 1962, we're not going to call it a, a quarantine uh, we're, sorry we're not going to call it a blockade we're going to call it a quarantine so a uh, blockade is a, an act of war a quarantine is well a quarantine whatever you want to take that to be so sometimes these words and semantics are important and this is part of the game of international relations and um, yeah you're right they don't have salvage rights um, but from their perspective I guess they're in the middle of one of the biggest contests in human history where the you know, the fate of of or the future of the the human uh, endeavor is is on the line. So for them, I guess it was worth it.
0: Okay, so tell us about this amazing cover story that the CIA then developed.
1: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> well, this is one of the one of the really amazing things about studying this subject. So for for me, one of the things that's very humbling and also really incredible is, I mean, sometimes you couldn't literally make this stuff up I mean there's a whole bunch of other stories I could tell you about but if I told you about them in a bar and you over or, or you overheard me you'd be like you should have heard this BS artist with a Scottish accent in the bar last night telling me all of these crazy stories <laughs> uh, or I overheard them but but some of them are really really incredible so this one um how do we do this how do we provide a cover story so let's break it down So one stage of it, the Hollywood producer, uh, famously, generously, eccentric, uh, maybe more literally, uh, wackadoodle, cookie boo, I don't know what the term of art is in Australia. (laughs) I've just gone with weird, yeah. <laughs> okay, weird. <laughs> so so the, great, the great thing about having someone who's known as being a little bit bonkers as part of the cover story is that a lot of things really make sense because to people that are bonkers, more things make sense than to people that aren't like that. So, so that's one part of the story he gets brought in. So it's called the Use Glomar Explorer. So we're going to build a ship from scratch. It's built in Pennsylvania from scratch. Now remember these submarines, this submarine K-129 goes down in 1968. It's not until 1974 that the ship goes out into the ocean to try to gather it up from the ocean floor. So we're talking about quite a considerable period of time. They put adverts out in the the trade publications. This ship is being built. We're going to try to get manganese nodules, so it's basically metal, a metal, metallic substance from the ocean floor. This is the purpose. Um, we've got artefacts at the museum that, that show the level of detail and planning that went into this. So I'm talking overalls with a Glomar Explorer on the back and a logo, and you can see the stitching in them. You know, this is not something that was just done willy-nilly, fly-by-night. Just think about the levels of detail that you have to build up to make all of this look plausible on the surface. So how are you uh, purpose building a ship from scratch? So is Hughes do- fully
0: briefed about, is he sort of brought in a hey, hey, Hughes, we've got some kind of, you know, secret CIA stuff, but we want you to pretend that you're building a giant mining ship. Is he fully part of it?
1: Well, he he had worked with the U.S. government before on a variety of different contracts, so he's not he he doesn't really do much other than agree to lend his name to the project. Um, but I think that uh, I think that lending his name to it also gives a, a, a an interesting Hollywood spin. Uh, so he's not you know read into it. He's not part of the planning. He's not kept abreast of what's going on. He just lends his name to it, and he has a history of working with the the American government.
0: Okay, so it's um, it's hugely expensive, as you're saying. And after being built in Pennsylvania, it then sailed to uh, to California to collect the claw. Had the claw been quite hard to engineer? I mean, this is not just as you say the claw in the the toy arcade. This claw must have had to been absolutely massive.
1: Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, so this is an interesting story. So it's built in the East Coast. It won't go through the the Panama Canal. Um, it has to go round the uh, cape of c- cape horn uh, around the coast of south america it comes up to long beach california then it does west coast sea trials it gets fitted with the claw as you can imagine this whole this whole enterprise it's not it's not something where you can go and look at the record and say okay this is how a b c and d done something similar this is something that you're you're Improvising on this is like a riff. This is this is more like jazz music than you pick up, you know, Beethoven symphony that's all written out for you. All you have to do is colour in between the lines. This is something that involves a bit more, um, a bit more <laughs> uh, being on the being on the back foot, trying to bob and weave and so forth. So, so to get the claw, a huge claw. One of the ways that I've heard it described, which I think is a good one, is. Imagine you're on top of the Empire State Building. You have an eight-foot wide claw. You send it down to the ground and a one-inch uh, diameter uh, like chain. Then you have to grab a hold of a car filled with gold down at the bottom on the street and bring it all the way to the top in the pitch blackness without anyone noticing that you're doing it. <laughs> So this is, this is, you know, you can imagine how difficult that would be. That makes winning a teddy bear at the fairground look pretty easy. So a very, very difficult thing to do. All of the technical ins and outs and backs and forth, as you can imagine, the sea trials, they take a long period of time. The East Coast trials, the West Coast trials, the claw. There's lots of testing, lots of things that are going on. And remember, all of this takes place over a period of six years.
0: So finally, nineteen seventy four, the 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 Glomar Explorer is actually ready to head out into the Pacific. So, what it goes back to the spot where they they thought that the K one two nine was. I mean, it is still there. But when they the ship gets there, there is actually some Soviet ships nearby, right? Is, do they suspect something, or is this just a coincidence?
1: Yeah, no, it's a it's a very good question. Uh, so. It goes from Long Beach. Eventually, makes its way to the place uh, where they think the K one twenty nine went down. Then a couple of Soviet ships turn up, um, basically trying to figure out what's going on. So the Soviet Union, um, we've got a couple of different ships that turn up. They're taking photographs. They're um, they're you know asking what are you doing, what's going on, etc. etc. So, um they're there they 're trying to figure out what 's going on. They take lots of photographs um, but it doesn't you know they don't they don 't really understand what it is that 's going on so I guess the subterfuge lasts long enough for them to do what they need to do but you know the oceans at this point, if we think about satellites, if we think about the way the the globe is mapped, if we think about the size of this vessel. So the Glomar Explorer is 619 feet long. We're talking about something that's very, very long. Uh, So those types of things people tend to notice, even in the the expanse of the Pacific Ocean. Uh, So a couple of different ships turn up, they eventually leave, uh, and then that's when we got onto the point of trying to bring the submarine up to the surface.
0: So how did the attempt go? I think the claw got down and grabbed on okay, didn't it?
1: The claw got down, it, it, it grabbed on okay, they managed to get a hold of it. You can just imagine, imagine it here. It's, it's like the best teddy bear your kid has ever wanted. Um, I'm being a little bit playful, obviously. But imagine you get a hold of it, imagine you're on that ship, you're bringing it up, you're like, holy smoke, this is going to be huge. we about it. the it, intelli- we're doing it, it's it- happening, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Think about the intelligence payoff. You've been working on this for a long period of time. You're involved in it. You're getting it up to the surface. It gets there. It gets there. It gets a third of the way up. It's still on the hook. You keep bringing it up two-thirds of the way up. Holy smoke, we're going to do it. We're going to get it all the way to the surface. And then two-thirds of the uh, K-129 break away and fall back to the ocean floor. Uh, So they managed to bring up one-third of it. They find some Soviet submariners who had, you know, died when the ship went down. It went down, losing all hands, which mean means everybody on board died. Uh, then, much later in the the early nineties, they pass over some uh, video footage of a, uh, you know, ceremony that they have for the Soviet submariners. They, you know, lay them to rest and so forth. Um, after the Cold War's down, they share that um, they share that video with the. What? what's then the uh, Russia. Um, but they bring it up, they get the, you know, we don't know exactly, there's no detailed report about what intelligence they found, uh, what they didn't find, what they didn't get because the other two-thirds sank to the... Bottom up, back to the bottom. Of that the was the Ocean. bit
0: that held the the really the really good stuff, if you will. Now, Andrew, just to explain because I'm sure people are going. Hang on, you've got this this claw bringing up the sub. Where are you going to put the sub? Because you obviously can't tow it back. But the, the, the ship was meant to open, wasn't it? And the sub sort of come up in, inside it and be stored there.
1: That that that's right. So the Glomar Explorers took 619 feet long. The Soviet sub is about 320. Five, I think, feet long. So we're talking just about half the size of the Glomar Explorer. So it comes up within the ship. There's a what's called a moon pool. So the Glomar Explorer opens up. The hook brings it up inside it. It's almost like something you watch in a James Bond movie.
0: I was just having uh, visions of Roger Moore being part of this somehow, yes.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. They bring it up and it's inside uh, the Glomar Explorer. Now, the Glomar Explorer is uh, around 50, 50, 55 50, 60,000 um, tonnes. The K129 is 2,000 tonnes, so it's almost like four times the weight of it. But nevertheless, because of the ship, because of the size, because of the way that um, all of the, the, the laws of physics work that's out, it can still carry it. Um, and remember, it doesn't bring the entire submarine to the surface it only brings a third of it so there's actually room for much more but yeah that's how it works because as you can imagine it's carrying, it's bringing up something that's much heavier so it's not it can't exactly bring it around and over the top it has to come up inside mm. and, they, and they get around that with a technological workaround.
0: Um, Dr Andrew Hammond is here historian and curator at the International Spy Museum based in Washington so Andrew they couldn't send the claw back down to get the rest of it?
1: Um, so uh, this is a very, <laughs> this is a very good question. Uh, so the I mean, if you think about how the other two thirds are going to go down, you know, they're going to go down in a particular type of way. Where are they going to end up? Uh, how it you know the, the, it necessitates a step back, like from an engineering perspective, we need to take a, take a step back and think about this because all of the 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 work that had they had done was predicated on it being. One continuous unit and it all being in a in a particular place, but now those those conditions no longer hold. They're dealing with something different, so it, take, it necessitates a step back. But then, when they take that step back, something else happens in the intervening period, which means that they can't really go back to get it anyway.
0: Now, is this the fact that the story actually emerges in the uh, the US media?
1: As indeed, yeah, as. So February 1975, um, there's actually declassified documents about this, where the CIA director, William Colby, he's in a meeting with President Ford, uh, Henry Kissinger, the Secretary of Defence, Lesinger, and they're talking about this. There's there's allegations in the Los Angeles Times that we've been raising a piece of a Soviet submarine. Um, So this is February 1975, where the story's murky-ish. Then the following month, uh, 1975, it comes out in the LA Times in a in a bigger way. Um, and again, there's more meetings, um, m- more discussions. James Schlesinger, uh, he says, this episode, sorry, Secretary of Defence Schlesinger, he says, this episode has been a major American accomplishment. The operation is a marvel, technically. But nevertheless... It's, it's bubbling out in the, in the press. That's when we get to the, the Glomar response, because this is a, a top secret operation. It involves something that's very pivotal to the very fundamentals of the Cold War. And that's when the CIA uh, comes up with the, the Glomar response that your listeners will probably have heard of, even if they don't know it by that title.
0: And this is neither confirm nor deny, because Andrew, the Soviets, like they'd be getting wind of this, right? They would be, they would see this news in the US press, and they'd be like, "They did what to our stuff <laughs> Like, uh, exactly. America answers, please.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so, in in the world of intelligence, one of the things that's uh, discussed quite a lot at the moment is what is called, called open source intelligence. So, this is intelligence that you can gather from sources that you or I could get a hold of. So these days it largely refers to things online. But in the past, open source intelligence would would mean listening to radio, listening to ABC uh, Australia uh, to figure out what's happening over there, reading Australian newspapers, reading Australian magazines, because sometimes this stuff bubbles out uh, in the public. So the Soviets would would have got wind from it, from the Los Angeles Times. Then later on, I think it gets... The story gets broken open further by Seymour Hersh, who, of course, is breaking open stories all over the place around this period. 1975, just to put it into context, this is the year when the CIA's so-called family jewels uh, get exposed. There's uh, congressional committees, so we've got the uh, the church committee and the Senate, we've got the Pike committee and the House, we've got the Rockefeller Commission from the presidency, So there's all of these investigations into the behaviour of the CIA, the FBI, etc, etc. So it comes at a very inopportune time, if you want to put it like that. Um, So the way that they try to deal with it um, at the time is is the GLOMAR response, which is, yeah, we can either confirm nor deny that this operation took place.
0: Did the Soviets make an official request to find out what had been happening from the American government and then this is then the response that they get?
1: I think that this was more a response to the American press. Um, I don't think that this was a formal uh, diplomatic response. Um, I'm I'm absolutely sure that the Soviets would have asked what was going on and, and, and what was happening and what the Americans were up to, but it's the Cold War, it's a huge intelligence contest um, uh, by 1975 um, things are looking pretty th- things are getting pretty hairy so I think that from the United States perspective you know we're not going to tell you about our <laughs> secret operations come on you know what do, do, we, do we look like when we were born yesterday um, of course we're not going to do that we're going to we're going to um, deflect and, and deny and and you know make sure that you don't get Access to what we don't want you to know about—just
0: uh, incredible stuff. So, um, <laughs> so they didn't—they didn't end up get the gold because um, the, the bit of the sub they got wasn't the, the key part that they wanted. Did do we know if the CIA actually learnt much that was useful out of the bit of K one two nine they did get?
1: Yeah, they didn't get all the gold, but. Um, as far as we know they got gold. Uh we just don't know what it was. I mean I think given the context of the time, if you if someone came to you and said, We can't get we can't deliver a whole nuclear submarine to you, but we can give you a third of it. People like sounds good to me. Uh, you know, if you're if you're involved in, in the American intelligence and, and defense enterprise, and you're trying to figure out what the Soviets are up to with their submarines, then I think that that would be a win by by any yardstick. So they don't get all the gold; they get some gold. We know uh, or we assume what it exactly was. Um, we don't have all of the declassified documents yet, so we don't know what it was. Yeah.
0: Oh, so that's uh, still to come somewhere down the track. So, Andrew, what is in the museum from uh, Project Azorian?
1: From Project Azorian, we've got the wig that the deputy director of the CIA wore when he went to visit uh, the Glomar Explorer. (laughs) 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 So this is Vernon Walters. Uh, His wig is there. We have uh, a piece of actual manganese, the manganese nodules that, that were part of the cover story for why the ship was built. We have some of the coveralls that were used. We have other bits and pieces of the ship. Um, So we've got- uh, So what happened to the
0: ship itself?
1: So what happened to, this is a really good question. (laughs) Um, It's not in the International Spy Museum. You can't come to see it. Um, What happened to the ship itself actually is is a good question that I would like to get to the bottom of uh, myself.
0: So no one's clear. No one knows where the Glomar Explorer is or where it went.
1: I, I mean, someone will know where it is, I'm sure. Um, so, I, I mean, m- maybe it is out there, and, and I'm—I I don't know about it yet. But as far as I know, it's not—it's not common knowledge what happened to it. Um, I guess that would—that would raise all kinds of issues and questions if. You know, it was just put out on a, you know, on a tweet or something. So um, someone will know where it is. I mean, if they gathered it up and they got intelligence from it and they took it in the Glomar Explorer, you know, there would have been an after... Oh,
0: no, effect. I'm wondering about the Glomar Explorer itself, where that is, not oh, the K129. Oh, sorry, sorry,
1: right. Okay, sorry. Well, that's <laughs> so that's mysterious, the
0: Glomar this giant ship disappearing. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, uh, so the Glomar Explorer, I believe it, it, it kicks around for another uh, a number of other years. Uh, I think at one point it's um, involved with work with the U.S. Navy. I think it gets sold to a couple of companies, and then it's actually a really good question. I don't know where that uh, where that where that ship is at the moment, or what happened to it. My suspicion is that it probably got broken down for salvage and, and reappropriated into other. Seagoing vessels and so forth.
0: Well, that'd be something nice to grab for the museum at any rate. Eh, <laughs> it really would, right?
1: <laughs> what a fantastic and, story. And there's the, a great uh, just additional twist to this story. So in 2014, the CIA set up a Twitter account. So no matter what you, what you think, compared to a lot of other intelligence agencies here in the United States, the American intelligence agencies are actually remarkably open So in the UK, for example, MI6 didn't even officially exist until 1997. It was like denied. It wasn't on an official legislative footing. But in the United States in 2014, CIA set up a Twitter account and their very first tweet was, we can neither confirm nor deny that this is our first tweet. So they were having a play on the Glomar response.
0: And we've all learned something tonight. Um, and I think there was a, a movie made, actually, I was reading before, I think 2010. Have you seen it? Uh,
1: I actually haven't seen it for uh, a few years, but um, I've seen, there, there's a good documentary out there on this as well. Um, and if you actually go to, if you just Google Glomar, Glomar Explorer declassified documents, if you go to a place called the National Security Archive, you can read uh, a bunch of the declassified documents. They're, they're very fascinating. And One of the things I do at the museum, besides being the historian and curator, uh, I host our podcast called Spycast. Um, Actually, Australia's our third biggest audience. Um, But we have an episode of our podcast that's on this particular story. Um, And for anybody in Australia that's interested, we also, last year, we had on the current director of ASIO, which is Australia's MI5 or or FBI, if you want to put it like that.
0: Yes. (laughs) Wow. All right, well, you're (laughs) interested in what we're up to. Andrew, I will let you go. Thank you so much for joining us from Washington to talk to us about the Glomar Explorer on Nightlife tonight.
1: It's a pleasure to speak to you. Thanks for having me on. Uh,
0: Dr. Andrew Hammett is historian and curator at the International Spy Museum based in Washington.
1: On ABC Radio and on the ABC Listen app, this is Suzanne Hill.